0: We're continuing this morning uh, our series that we've been going through, the book of Matthew. I'm sorry, the Matthew. Where did that come from? <laughs> going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, don't worry, I brought the right sermon. Uh, we're going through the, the Gospel of Mark this morning, continuing through. We're at chapter 9, starting in verse 30, going all the way uh, to verse 50. As uh, is clear by my... Uh, lostness already, we do need the Holy Spirit with us here, Um, so let's pray uh, for the Spirit's blessing upon us in this time. God, this is your word that we are coming to. You speak through it as you have spoken to us for so many generations. We are just simply the next generation of your people here listening to the same word, the same message, uh, listening to the words of the same Christ Jesus who all of us need Father, we pray for your spirit to be with us in this time, to be going and moving with your word, to be allowing us to hear, but more importantly, doing the work that we cannot do, shaping our hearts. Pray for your spirit to be upon the man who's preaching here too. Give him clarity of thought. Lord, would your spirit go forth with power this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50, this is the word of God. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, being Jesus, did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. Amen. Well, the sermon title here, you may have noticed this morning, uh, One Holy Catholic Church. And maybe that's, you know, had some questions, like, what, is, what does that have to do with anything here? Um... What, you know, what's he talking about? Well, it's a reference to the Apostles' Creed, right? the, uh, the creed uh, that's uh, dating back to the 5th century from some of the early times of the church, confessing uh, some of the, the earliest and most basic and foundational truths of the Christian faith right there. The foundational creed summarizing the most basic Christian doctrines. You know, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And then it goes on to, the, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And after that then we get to those words, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that's where it's coming from. One Holy Catholic Church. Okay, And, 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 and with that, so Again, we're taking those from uh, this title, essentially from uh, from that part of of the, the Apostles' Creed. There, right? The Holy Catholic Church. So the, or you know, the being singular, one. Okay, one, which is rough reference to the Church being a singular Church, a singular assembly of God's people. There is not multiple churches, but ultimately there is one Church. There is one large worldwide Church. And it's united together in Christ. That's why it's one church. We are one people. But it's not just one church, but it's also a holy church as well. Right? Holy being pure, meaning sanctified. Right? The, the church is holy because it's been cleansed from her sins By Jesus Christ, who has died for them. It has been set apart as holy by God. Set apart for his purposes. Uh, It has given a holy status, a holy calling in the world. But it's also the holy Catholic Church. And that's Catholic, I want to make sure, little c. Not big c, not Roman Catholic, but little c. Meaning universal uh, meaning for for all times and for all places when we do so on those occasions in our, our confession of faith when sometimes we use the Apostles Creed you may note there's that little that little uh, that little star we put there said Catholic meaning universal uh, it, that, that means also the church's message is relevant for all people at all times in all places and it also means that we are all part of one church Right? We are just one expression of the worldwide church in Jesus Christ. We are, we are founded upon Jesus, and then we are formed by the Spirit. Okay, so you're thinking, all right, great, yes, that those are, all, those are all, all good, important truths about, about the church. But how does this relate to the sermon? How does that relate to the text right here? I promise you it does. We'll get there. But what I want you to do is, is file that in the, in the back of your mind, and hopefully, uh, we will get it to, to it at the end, but hopefully it will become a little bit more clear, though, to you as we continue to go through the sermon and we get to the end. We're going to revisit that. But getting into the text here, Jesus, though, is on his way to, to Jerusalem. This is the part here, the time where his earthly ministry is, is now coming to a close, uh, it's 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 about soon to be to be finished they're going from uh, the, the northern parts of Galilee and they're traveling south to Jerusalem for the final time and Jesus is spending these last weeks with his disciples and that's why it says in verse 30 he didn't want anyone to know that he was traveling through because these are the last weeks on his last trip and he's teaching his disciples he's spent taking this intentional time with his disciples uh, telling them about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And what is it that he tells his disciples? Verse 31, that he will be given over, that he will be killed, and that he'll rise again. Now that's, we've heard that before, if that sounds familiar. We heard it before in chapter 8, verse 31 there. Uh, Jesus talks about how the Son of Man will, will, will be, uh, be betrayed and, handed over and And killed and will rise again. And you know what? We're going to hear it a third time uh, in chapter 10 also. So Jesus here is is saying it these three times in quick succession here. And there's an emphasis to it then. There's an emphasis that he's telling his disciples. And that is this. That death, his death, and his resurrection are vital to his mission. It's why he came. He came to live and to die and to live again. And his kingdom is built upon this fact. The king of, his, of the kingdom, the king will give himself up for the sake of his people. And it's actually how entrance into the kingdom is accomplished. How sinful, failing people can actually be brought into a perfect and holy kingdom by Jesus himself being the righteousness and, uh, for his people. By Jesus himself being the sacrifice which atones for their sins to bring them in. And the death and the life of the self giving servant king then also shapes the ethics of the kingdom it informs the the disciples it it informs citizens of the kingdom on how we are to live it sets forth the values and so the first of our three points here then is our what are the values of this kingdom and it's this it's humble servitude humble servitude that's what we see from jesus because that evening, then, they get back there. Uh, they, they get into the home as they've been traveling along the way. And they're, they're staying in this home. And Jesus says, hey, what were, you, what were you all talking about on the road as we were getting here? In verse 32. And to their silent shame, they just kind of sit there. Because they were talking about who was greatest among them. And you have to wonder, like, how did they get on this? I mean... Uh, We had just looked uh, the the last couple weeks here at the transfiguration. And who went up? It was Peter and James and John. And they kind of represent this this inner circle of the disciples. And do you think maybe they were the ones who kind of brought this up? Hey, you know, we're we're some of the greatest disciples here. In fact, we came down, if you remember from last week, looking at the the demon-possessed boy. We came down the mountain and there were the rest of you nine... And you guys couldn't even cast out the demon. Maybe if we were there, we would have, would have been able to do it. And you can imagine them arguing. And so they're talking about what is greatness? Who is great in the kingdom of God? And then why were they silent, though, when Jesus asked them, what were you talking about? Why are they silent? Because of the shame. Right? As, they're, as they're, they're trying to sort out this sort of hierarchy, right? And then Jesus was telling them, well, I'm going to suffer and die. And as they are, were discussing greatness in human terms, in human thinking, Jesus, though, instead was revealing what is actually true greatness according to God's economy. It's not in the ways that we think. It's about servitude. It's about sacrifice. Kingdom life revolves around servitude. Around a loving, humble servitude. Because Jesus the king was a servant. He came for us in the same sort of way. With a willing servitude, a loving servitude, and a humble servitude, right? That's what greatness is. That's what Jesus says is greatness. In verse 35, he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. To be first, you've got to be last. To be first, you've got to be a servant of all. Because your earthly status doesn't mean anything. That's not the way of Jesus who laid aside all of his heavenly privilege and came on and, and, and into this world taking on human flesh. That's the way of Jesus there. That's not the way of his followers. Who were, or, uh, that wasn't the way that his followers or, Jesus, or the disciples were, were doing. That's not what they were thinking about. No, the they're, they're true followers of Jesus follow him in the same sort of way. Of giving up their own rights and privileges. Of serving one another. Now all kingdoms, all nations, all cultures have their own ethos. They all have their own mores, their values. The values which govern the expectations of how you would expect that people to uh, to, to act. And what does our culture revolve around? Power. And status, isn't it? And what's it done? How's it left us? It's wrecked us. It's left us in ruins as people have done nothing but grab for power. But imagine, though, a kingdom of people where the central virtue isn't power or the attainment of status. Think and imagine for yourselves a kingdom of sacrifice, of humility. Think of a kingdom of love that's all played out amongst one another. That's the kingdom of God. That's what disciples, that's what the people of God are to be. That's... How people who are formed by the cross of Jesus Christ live. And people who are oriented towards resurrection. And Jesus gives them an example of this. Of what this looks like. And he calls a child into their midst. And he stands him in front there. And he says in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name. Receives me. And whoever receives me. Receives not me but him who sent me. Now Children. We're not seen the most favorably. You didn't want to be called a child. We think of our culture as like the search and the quest for perpetual youth, right? What was the opposite of Jewish culture? Status came with maturity. Gray hair was seen as a good thing. Children had no real status unless they matured and they left the house because they were dependents. They were still under tutelage. And yet Jesus says, whoever receives a child in my name, in other words, whoever receives someone with low social status, who bears my name, receives not me, but him who sent me. See, receiving the lowly is an act of humility. Because many times, who do we want to receive? We want to receive someone uh, in order to gain some sort of status or, or association with them, right? Like, we're going to have, have the, the, everything that, that's associated with them given to us. But it's more than, just, more than just receiving or accepting. What does Jesus do? You know what Jesus does? It says he takes the child and he takes him in his arms. He embraces the child. Now, it's one thing to accept someone, isn't it? It's an entirely different thing to embrace them. We may accept people within the church, but do we embrace them? Do we go beyond just simply liking having them in our church, but do we embrace them? I don't want to ask the question, who have we accepted and who have we embraced? But rather, I want to kind of rephrase the question a little bit. Who am I embracing within the church, and why? Whose values, whose ethics am I reflecting? My self-sacrificial king, or the desire for power and status? Because this embracing here is a matter of our hearts. It's a heart, a heart that recognizes Jesus is a heart that is content in him. And it has no need for power or for anything else. In fact, servitude happens when we recognize that we already have everything in him. And we can lay aside ourselves because what we have in Jesus Christ is secure. Embracing someone in Christ. Even the, lonely, even the lowly is to embrace the triune God. That's what Jesus says. You don't just receive them, you receive me, and you don't just receive me, but you receive the one who sent me. It's not just the individual brother or sister, because Jesus is in and among his church, right? And his spirit is within the church, and Jesus and his spirit are within us, and receiving the son, then, is to, is to also receive the father, right? So you receive a brother, you embrace a sister, you're receiving Jesus, but you're also receiving the father, and, and you're also receiving the spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ who is within them. See, a church that loves God loves also what he loves. What does God love? He loves his church. He loves it enough. He loved enough to send his son to willingly die for it and then to fill it with his presence also. But we have that idea, though, in my name. Whoever receives a child in my name. Well, who is it, though, that comes in my name? Second point here is it's the faithful and obedient. That's who this is. And Jesus expands our view of who this, this encompasses, as he so often does. You can receive the lowly, but you can still have relatively small bounds drawn Yet he, he challenges the disciples' thinking. He challenges our thinking. In verse 38, the disciple John starts, starts saying how, how they saw someone acting. Or, Teacher, we saw someone act, you're casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. See, they saw someone who was acting actually in faith. They were, he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He was clearly believing... This person was clearly believing in Jesus, but the problem that John says is, they're not one of us. Now, why did this get them so upset? Were they jealous? Were they jealous of their status as being those who are specifically called? Were they jealous of of this person's success, especially perhaps against some of their unsuccess they had just had previously and trying to cast the demon out of the boy and they couldn't do it? See, jealousy often happens when we think that we have the market cornered. Jealousy happens when we have the mindset of self-exaltation. Jealousy happens when we are wrapped up with our own self-importance. Jealousy happens when someone threatens our self-perception. And what happens, again, we grow jealous. There's a rival. I'm I'm growing jealous of that person. And so what's the problem, though, with, with with these disciples then? Well, there shouldn't have been a problem here. Because this person was was serving the cause of Jesus with belief in him, with faith in him. And the problem was with the disciples. And Jesus takes that us when he says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus takes that us in verse 38 and he redefines it with his version of us in verse 40. The one who is not against us is for us. The lines of us are drawn by faith and obedience to him. In fact, verse 39 then he says, no one acting in faith is going to blaspheme my name right after. They've, they've done these, these works of power. He says, we're working for the same cause. We're working for my kingdom. That person's one of us. There are only two sides in this conflict. There are only two sides. Right? There are only two sides when we think about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is exclusive. Right? The dividing line is, ...is faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get into the the kingdom of God? It is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is exclusive. There is a dividing line. But the kingdom is also at the same time... ...inclusive. It's also inclusive because the only... ...dividing line... ...is faith in Jesus Christ... There are no other ways that we can draw lines within the church for, for, or, uh, about the kingdom of God. You can't put different people on different tiers because of various things. No, the kingdom is exclusive because of faith. The kingdom is inclusive because the only dividing line is faith. There are only two sides to this. Yet how often, though, do we draw lines apart, though, from what Jesus has given us, and we exclude our own, or maybe even worse? And we turn insiders, kingdom insiders, actually into outsiders. When the only outsiders are those who are outside the community of faith. Or we draw extra demands upon outsiders which are contingent upon entering. We put up demands apart from faith and obedience in Jesus. You need to do this also. You need to think this also. You need to be like this also. But the thing is, in Jesus Christ, we are on the same side. And this is where it gets tricky, though, a little bit. Because we also have our own convictions, right? Our own convictions about faith and practice, which affect more of the specifics of how we actually live as Christians, and right? how we live in the kingdom. Right? There is one church of Jesus Christ, but there are various expressions of the church in Jesus Christ. Now, just for an example here, we are a Presbyterian church. Uh, if you didn't know... Uh, on the front (laughs) all right we're a Presbyterian church and so that that there are some some things that we believe that that separate us or I want to say separate because that's actually almost getting at that are a distinction of of, in what we believe and how we we practice what we believe uh, against other other Protestant churches Right? Things that, that we believe about the, the scriptures being God's word, that informs how what we believe and, and how we go about practicing our faith. It it, it informs how we or um yeah, the, the beliefs that we have about God's sovereignty, uh about how we, we go about uh, even in times of worship here in the sacraments, all sorts of various things, right? Now those those are convictions and those are, are, are expressions that may that may result in how we gather. In other words, like how, we, how we, we, we gather together in a way that we want to maybe group ourselves in terms of what we're, we're thinking about and the convictions that we have. But those don't form the boundaries of the kingdom. you are more than just Presbyterians in the kingdom of God. It's okay. You can say amen. You can let those, if there's any char- latent charismatic things that you have in your heart, let them out. It's fine, okay? But what matters though, it's faith. And we can have convictions, we ought to have convictions, but we can be peaceable with one another, and we ought to be peaceable and united with one another, because we are brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there are ways that we can express our faith and our service together, and we ought to, because we are the one church of Jesus Christ. We ought to celebrate what God is doing in other pockets and spheres of his kingdom, at the same time, we ought to weep and lament at the tragedies that happen in other pockets of the kingdom because something that affects, affects the body, it, it doesn't just affect one member of the body, it affects the whole body of which we are just a part. If the values of the kingdom are built upon humility and it includes the faithful who are acting in obedience, then valid service is also done by those who act, even in their small ways. Because being lowly doesn't preclude you from commendable service in the kingdom. In verse 41, Jesus talks about giving a cup of cold water in my name. Now, giving a a cup of water was the most basic hospitality that, that you could do for someone. Just the extension of the most basic expectation. But see, even the most simple service for the kingdom there, even just giving a cup of water to another brother or sister in need, to a fellow believer that is commended by Jesus. And most of all, too, because that act is extended to Jesus, right? Based on what, what, what Jesus said before about receiving me. But it's also then ultimately extended to the triune God himself. And doing good for the kingdom, see, doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be some sort of big thing for it to be worthy. It can even be the small things. Jesus says, In no way will you lose your reward. No, that's a commendable thing that you're doing. One commentator I, I read here writes this He says, There are no distinctions between trivial and important tasks. There is only faith and obedience shown in devotion to Jesus, and wherever those qualities exist, they call forth the approval of God. But third, though, how do disciples conduct themselves, though? Think a little bit more about that. How do disciples conduct themselves in this? Third, it's, it's a holy witness. It's a holy witness. Witness to the kingdom and witness to Jesus happens more, though, than just through service, just the things that we do. It happens through carrying out the calling of conduct that he has put upon us. And the calling of conduct is holiness. And that holiness has always been an important marker of God's people. In the Old Testament, it was the holiness of Israel there, or the, 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 holiness, the, the holy calling that was given to Israel that was, that was supposed to, to define them and set them apart from the other nations. They were set apart as being holy to the Lord. And the same is for today, for God's people today. Holiness sets the church apart from the present age. God takes holiness seriously. Takes it enough. Jesus takes it seriously enough to even die for it. course that raises the if not it raises questions about the validity of the cross for us and if Jesus doesn't actually take holiness that seriously then why did he have to die to forgive us of our sins and make us holy but also why else would he give us the Holy Spirit to be at work among us shaping us more in his image and his likeness see Jesus takes